0: Say Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Um, I, I'm very excited about today's episode. It's just going to be me and the guest. Uh, this is somebody that I've been talking to for many years, um, you know, through uh, email and just, you know, correspondence, really having a lot of my thinking changed. And challenged by this person, and so I'm very excited that she's on. It's Tamara Knopper. She is a sociologist, a writer, and an editor, and most recently she edited Mariam Kaba's We Do This Till We Free Us, which uh, I don't know, I think most of the people who listen to the show would be familiar with Mariam's work. Um, you know, a lot of the ideas that are about abolition are, are come a lot from from Miriam's work and uh the book is out by Haymarket and so if you don't have it already please go out and get it so Tamara how are you doing?
1: I'm good thank you so much for having me on the show Jay I'm so excited to be in conversation with you.
0: (laughs) Well um I I don't know it's a long time coming I think when I first thought of the podcast you were one of the people that I was hoping to talk to and I'm sorry that it took so long it's just that you know we had this coronavirus thing that we had to talk Mm -hmm. about um (laughs) forever. (laughs) I guess we still have to talk about it. But um, yeah, this seems to be a great moment to talk to you. And I don't know, I I don't have much in terms of structuring this conversation. I think we can just go wherever we want here. But I want to start in this one moment, because I think it's interesting. And it's, to me, it's something I keep thinking and writing about, which is right after 1992, LA riots, rebellion, you know, whatever one calls it, there's this moment where the Korean community in Los Angeles, and I guess in some ways, the larger Asian American community in Los Angeles is trying to figure out what has happened, right? Mm-hmm. And we, everyone sort of knows the statistics about this. There's like 2000 Korean stores burned. There's the history of Latasha Harlins, who's the 15 year old girl who's shot in the back of the head. There are the boycotts that came after the Harlins murder. There's, uh, you know, there's, Soonja Do, who is the shopkeeper, sort of being let out. There's Ice Cube's Black Korea. I, wrote, I sort of wrote about this all recently in the Times. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, like there was the response in that moment was really interesting to me because like it seemed to be the last moment that I can think of where like there was sort of this like, well, what is Asian America type of thing? Right? Mm-hmm. And it took a lot of scholars and writers and thinkers coming together to try and figure this out. And that the context of the way in which they were thinking about what is Asian America is like, okay, well, what is Asian America in comparison to whiteness? And what is Asian America mm-hmm. in comparison to blackness, right, after mm-hmm. this this big mm-hmm. event has happened? So mm-hmm. I know that you've thought about this a lot because I, I know this because whenever I think about this, I ask you about it. So like, <laughs> uh, yeah, t- tell us what happened in that moment.
1: Well, I think it was an interesting moment a couple of ways because um, you have... A lot of people weighing in on it. And so I want to kind of start actually with Dr. Cornel West. Like if we think about his book, Race Matters, like I remember reading that in an undergrad and I didn't really know who Dr. West was. And I certainly didn't know about his kind of um, uh, scholarship and philosophy and so forth. And a lot of these books that are considered kind of classic works. But if you think about the opening of that book, It's actually, he talks about the L.A. Rebellion being a multiracial rebellion. And and so what happens is with the L.A. Rebellion, it's both kind of, it's treated by a range of people, both, um, you know, academics, particularly in Asian American studies and people who are doing work outside of Asian American studies, but who are Asian Americanist in some ways. Um, And I know you've written about some of these uh, scholars and so forth and some of the studies that were done. But you also just have this kind of conversation about wh- how do we think of race and how do we think of kind of race relations in this moment? And the way that the rebellion keeps getting described is as kind of a multi-ethnic or multi-racial rebellion. And I don't think multiracial rebellions are actually that new, but what it was is it was a way of saying, you know, we've had, um, like you saw kind of essay saying like the fire this time and it was a reference to, you know, uh, the fire uh, next time, you know, by Baldwin, but it was also a reference to all of the rebellions in um, and riots in the 1960s and 1970s. If you think about Claire Jean Kim, right, Claire Jean Kim, what made her work kind of distinct, she's a political scientist, and she was actually mentored by Adolf Reed. Dr. Reed and uh, Dr. Roger Smith um, were two of, you know, people, I think they were on her committee, but they were people that she acknowledges as influencing her work. And she writes Bitter Fruit. And she also writes an article called The Racial Triangulation of Asian Americans. And that's one of, like, that's a very well-cited theory
0: mm-hmm.
1: for thinking through not just Asian America, but I've seen Latinos. And Latino studies use variations of it because it's this idea of kind of a non-black person of color group. And she thinks about, she distinguishes between what you see as kind of racism and civic ostracism. And so, what you're seeing a lot in the scholarship is both this attempt but to can, kind of can
0: you fear. explain that a little bit more? Like, because I don't sure. think our many of our listeners are that familiar with it. Like, what okay. what, what what was she arguing in, about racial triangulation?
1: Well, so she argued that racial triangulation helps us kind of theorize Asian or we'll just American. Start. What is right racial yeah, sure.
0: triangulation? Let's start there. Yeah, sure.
1: So she created this kind of model that was like two axes, and one axis was. Um, racism and racial exclusion. And then the other axis was civic ostracism. Mm -hmm. And so civic ostracism was supposed to be a reference to being seen as um, foreign, right? Uh, As alien or as not belonging to the American, you know, kind of body, right? right? And so if we think about certain Asian American discourses where people say, you know, we're racially targeted or excluded because people think that we're forever foreigners, right? That's a very famous title by uh, Dr. Mia Tuan, where she talked about honorary whites or forever foreigners, and this way that we're often seen as either kind of model minority honorary whites or we're treated as kind of excludable, right? right, and not really ever belonging here. And so, what Dr. Um, Kim did, Claire Jean Kim, was she created this model and she tried to say that, like, you know, African Americans are kind of positioned uh, as race in a racist way below Asian Americans, but they're kind of positioned with inside the civic body and Asian Americans are racially triangulated where they're seen as positioned above African Americans racially, but they're seen as outside the civic body, the ownership class in, in the city. So there's been all these kind of sociological kind of inquiries in yeah, terms that's of... That's interesting. I didn't know that, that there yeah.
0: was so much debate about that. I mean, I thought that, oh, like, yeah. that you know, whatever your politics are, or whatever you think about what happened... And most people just agree that, you know, mostly like that Korean stores were way disproportionately uh, burned down and and looted during the during those three weeks.
1: Well, there has been different studies that were done about kind of the types of businesses and the types of property. So sometimes it was showing that people are more likely to burn down kind of businesses, but not like people's homes. Right. Or and that there were certain types of businesses that maybe people found to be um, less useful in the community, and so forth. And so there had already been kind of existing challenges to, let's say, liquor stores and the presence of liquor stores in neighborhoods, um, uh, for example. And that was a big part of, like, the rebuilding of L.A. There's a lot of tension over what businesses should be rebuilt. And was that a moment for trying to kind of have what some people would call kind of community control? efforts to kind of say, like, you know, maybe this is our opportunity not to have liquor stores rebuilt, right? Um, Or maybe we should have more laundries and so forth. So there was a lot of debate about, like, what Asian-owned businesses should be rebuilt. That was part of kind of these long-standing, um, you know, critiques and challenges that had sometimes emerged from kind of concerns about what types of businesses were proliferating.
0: What what comes out of, like, what is the sort of what, what what's the scholarly response, or what are some of the responses that come out in this moment, yeah. specifically about like Black and Korean relations, right? Because I, I think yeah. that what you point out is very important. That Koreatown, as it is right now, and especially back then, is a bit of a misnomer, right? Like people have yeah. a sense that like it's just it's only Korean people, when in fact the largest uh, ethnic group within Koreatown was Latinos at the time.
1: But her book, *Bitter Fruit*, was about the Flatbush boycotts in New York. Um, and in the nineties, and this was a very controversial boycott and was something that like Mayor David Dinkins got kind of embroiled in kind of being expected to kind of take a position and so forth. And so for those listeners who don't know, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. What are the boy, what were those boycotts?
1: It was a boycott at, um, a Korean market and it was, uh, black people and and a diverse group of black people. Um, I think some of them were, uh, Haitian American black people and so forth. Right. And they led a very long boycott against the store and it involved kind of the city trying to get involved and them and people trying to make appeals to the mayor. Right. And so one of the things that made Dr. Kim's book, bitter fruit kind of stand out in this conversation is that she took black critiques of Korean star owners pretty seriously. Like she didn't try to delegitimize it as misguided, um, as uh, misguided. And that was a theme that was coming out of the LA Rebellion scholarship and also of the kind of cultural commentary um, is that people are saying, well, uh, they were trying to argue Black people are misguided in targeting Korean owners, And what happens is like the, the Latino residents and also Latinos who were involved in the rebellions kind of disappear from the analysis and becomes kind of seen as Black-Korean conflict, right? right. And a lot of the discourse was this idea that Black people are supposedly misguided in targeting Korean store owners. And so what you see is both this kind of, um, uh, you see a couple of responses. So you see kind of the more social justice crowd saying, well, the real culprits are white supremacy and capitalist, and you're kind of targeting the petty bourgeoisie. So that's almost kind of the beyond black and white. That's kind of how the middleman minority theory kind of aligns with, let's say, a more socialist radical critique, like Dr. Marable's being like, you're kind of, you know, who are our real enemies as a, you know, white supremacy and capitalists, right? So that's kind of the social justice crowd saying, you know, this is misguided and that we need to learn kind of the history of black Asian solidarity. And so part of the social justice crowd starts to kind of do this, you know, recalling the hidden history stuff, right? And this is where I know you've raised some of these critiques, Jay, about the way that like, people recall, like, you know, um some of these historic moments between you know of Asian Americans engaging in kind of radical activism or third world activism or third world solidarity and this is where you start to see um some of the scholarship getting published and and to be fair i mean some of the scholarship is going to get published just to get published just because people are working on it and they cared and you know it's only like 15, years after, right? But you also have it being kind of weaponized in a certain way, right? By some of the social justice peoples, like, you know, black people are supposedly misguided. And if you just learn this kind of hidden history, but then you have kind of the more sociological crowd. And even though there had already been like a lot of studies on, um, Korean and also Chinese businesses in black neighborhoods, there have been some of those studies, uh, by scholars, um, you know, that were published, like, in the 80s and so forth, what you have is you start to have all the sociological work trying to disprove the idea that um, Koreans are kind of have a nefarious plan to set up shop in black neighbors. And so you have all these kind of studies that argue, well, Koreans are just disadvantaged, and they can't get access to capital, and they can't get access to loans, and they don't get any kind of government support. And it basically becomes this argument that They're kind of, quote, unquote, stuck doing business in black neighborhoods, or that's the only places that they could afford to open up. And also this argument that they just pool their resources between each other. And so you see a whole bunch of studies by social scientists um, kind of doing that type of work. So some of my work looking at Korean banking and the globalization of Korean banking was actually a critique of that work um, and about people kind of ignoring different institutional capitalization that was happening and just kind of reproducing this. You know a certain version of the mall minority, this idea of being self sufficient and that's just how you kind of were able to have a, s- a significant number of businesses in poor neighborhoods in a very short amount of time so
0: mm. well okay so what then what so what then it seems like there's a few baseline arguments that come out right not baseline but a few arguments that are coming out the first is uh the sort of well we just don't understand each other mm-hmm. arguments and that's sort of like a basic, well, if we just talk to each other, then, then we would mm-hmm. understand each other a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And the second one would be like, well, we have this secret history, right? I like how mm-hmm. you said that, actually. I <laughs> think it's about mm-hmm. right, right? Like, uh, you know, like AAPA and the Panthers and mm-hmm. third world mm-hmm. is thinking and... um you know, Yuri Kochiyama or whatever, right? Like and that's, sort,
1: dogs, of, and
0: so yeah, right. that's yeah. sort of the, the incantation. I, I just call it an incantation because that's what it seems like to me because mm-hmm. it's like five things and it's just said over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. As you know, I'm like very, I don't know if I'm critical of it. I'm just like not particularly credulous that, you know, like that has much relevance to what's happening mm-hmm. today. Um, mm-hmm. And then the 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 last part is just sort of a attempt to try and figure it out economically. Like, is mm-hmm. that right? Like, just try and say, like, this is why these places are in this area. Mm-hmm. So going back to what you're saying. So then, like, what, what was the argument that that uh, Claire Jean Kim made about about the, the boycotts?
1: Well, her, her, hers was more about trying to look at what were black people's critiques and kind of taking them seriously as a source of political mobilization. So, so she's a political scientist. Then? Um, just about, exploit, you know, certain critiques about exploitation, certain critiques about mistreatment. And these were not necessarily isolated critiques. If you look at a lot of these social science studies, and this is something that I think is kind of interesting, is that this is part of the collision. Now, if we think between uh, the so-called kind of so-called hidden history and, you know, the hidden history work is seen as kind of the more radical kind of intervention, right? And it's seen as, You know, if you're really committed to social justice, you know, um, and solidarity, you're going to kind of claim this hidden history as the history. Um, But if you look at a lot of these social science studies, that's where you actually get a lot of details of, you know, black residents and what their thoughts were about their experiences in these businesses and what they thought about kind of um, exploitation and so forth. And it's not to say it was always uniform, but you see, you know, people saying, they treat us like thieves. They make, we feel like criminals in the store, right? Or, you know, um, and and talking about kind of uh, the different treatment they get. And the reason why I say this is where kind of, um, you know, the social science work isn't considered as kind of politically sexy, right? It's not calling for solidarity per se. It's not saying, oh, there's a hidden history. It's not trying to kind of make It's not trying to make Asian Americans seem like radical social justice folks, but it is trying to do the same work as the social justice kind of hidden history narrative, in that it's trying to kind of rescue Korean Americans from a certain critique. But if you look at the social science work, there's a lot of data just even in what they produce that kind of raises these significant questions. And and, and what I mean is that in the data, when people are talking about their perceptions of each other... Korean immigrants are sometimes openly saying they look down on black people, right? And and black people are openly saying that they feel like they're, you know, looked down upon and criminalized. And so you see a lot of data of people who have a certain level of presence in those business relationships and in those neighborhoods saying it's not a rosy picture, right? But then you have this collision with kind of social justice narrative where people want to talk about, you know... um, these exceptional figures. And when I say exceptional figures, it's just that they weren't the norm.
0: right? For sure. I mean, like, that. Well, okay, so let, let, this was sort of getting at my question here, um, which is just like, all right, so what was it then? Like, what happened? Like, you know, we, you have basically three things going on. And two of them are essentially like, hey, let's try and figure out how to get along better. You know, it's not as bad as the media is making it seem to be. That Mm -hmm. was another part, I think, of that scholarship was just media criticism, saying like, NBC came down and took photos of men on roofs with guns and showed burning buildings. And they kept talking about the Black Korean conflict. And I was like, Mm -hmm. well, I mean, okay, that's true, you know, but they also were reporting things that happened. You know, there were Mm -hmm. people with guns on roofs, you know, Mm -hmm. there was a. lot of conflict and you know Mm -hmm. the way that that conflict was experienced by a lot of korean americans in koreatown was a black korean conflict like i'm Mm -hmm. sorry if you don't feel like that's true that's just what happened yeah um i the thing that i i guess i'm curious about what i want to talk about is just like what narrative really won out there because to me it seems Mm -hmm. like the narrative that won out was the one that was like hey it's not as bad as as uh as people are making it out to be also, like, or, or the ones that were calls towards, like, activism, right, like, calls mm-hmm. towards solidarity, being like, well, if we just act like AAPA and Third World Liberation Front and stand with the Panthers, you know, or like, I guess we can't say Richard Aoki anymore, but mm-hmm. we just say, like, you know, if we, if we were at the Huey Newton, Free Huey Newton at mm-hmm. the Alameda County Courthouse, um, then none of this would happen, right? Which also seems to me to be like sort of like a strange way to think about things because you're not talking about an activist class of like students at UC Berkeley mm-hmm. here, right? You're talking mm-hmm. about, about people who are very recent immigrants who mm-hmm. have no understanding of that history. Um, like wh- why do you think that that was – like do you think that was a narrative that went out? and And if – like or or what do you think was the sort of message that came out of there because it's it was this moment where I think that what Asian American is is kind of defined, right, mm-hmm. and I just still struggle to figure out what that what came out of it outside of
1: <laughs> well, I would actually say that there's a couple things: one is, I don't think the social justice narrative won out I think. That, I think, and, and I'm not trying to assume that I know your full totality of your world, Jay. but like the circles that you might be more exposed to um, in your work and just kind of your relationships and so forth, and the circles I might be more exposed to, we might be getting kind of a lot of people in our purview or our view that um, are talking on the social justice Right. oriented side. I think that's I very th- true. Right. I don't yeah. think the majority of Asian Americans are talking about, you know, free Huey P. Newton and free no, Huey P. No, no, Newton. No. A lot of them don't know who he is. Right.
0: I think and I the don't vast think, majority yeah. do not know who Huey Newton is. Yeah. And I
1: don't think a lot of people in general of any race know who he is at this point. No, right. No. And so there are these figures that we kind of, you know, as you said, it's the same. And you're seeing this post, you're seeing this in this moment, too, where people are talking about black Asian solidarity as kind of a way to make Asian Americans, quote unquote, more safer um, from anti-Asian violence. And you're seeing kind of the same, I mean, it's literally the same memes or the same images and the same kind of figures being talked about as examples of solidarity. right? right? So they're kind of recycled, but they're recycled among a very particular kind of group of people. And those group of people can have diversity between themselves. So you could have like Asian American studies professors, Asian American cultural critics, social justice you know kind of activist the person who just you know reads you know twitter regularly and follows certain people right Right. i mean so you can have a whole bunch of people and diversity between them and and sometimes even like kind of institutional or class diversity but that's not the majority of people and i think that's one of the things i've been trying to push back on is that that conversation conversation actually can i understand why people are looking at that and why why it matters to people but it can actually obscure a lot of actual kind of real tensions between people. And also it helps reinforce this idea that this conflict is just a media myth, right? Because it's this idea of like, oh, mainstream media is just circulating these images. But if we kind of tell this hidden history that we're kind of doing counter narrative work to the mainstream media and One of the issues, as you know, and you talked about like Abelman and Lee's blue dreams, right? Well, John Lee, one of the co authors, you know, he wrote stuff about how like, you know, the Black Korean conflict is is mainly a media myth. That was a dominant frame that came out. But it was one where I understand sensationalism, I understand concerns about sensationalism, and I think sensationalism was probably involved in showing certain images or certain headlines, right? But what has happened is it's been a way to kind of deny – the media myth thing is really a way to deny black people's concerns about what race relations are like with Asian Americans. And this is not to say that there's a uniform black position, but what happens is it's – like the media myth is really – it helps Korean immigrants in in the case of – in the case of the black Korean conflict and post LA rebellion helps Korean immigrants to say, we shouldn't have been targeted. It's misdirected. Or if you're mad at us about these stores, we aren't really, you know, responsible or to blame. And the media is helping kind of whip up a frenzy here. And one of the longstanding kind of conversations about Korean Americans that's I think more dominant, right? So, you know, even if I'm critical of, let's say, this idea of misdirected black rage and so forth, um, that, you know, I'm critical of that kind of social justice commentary. And I'm critical of people saying that, you know, oh, it's all misdirected. But there's a way where the image of Korean immigrants is self-sufficient. That cuts across all of these different kind of conversations. So you have just, I mean, if you look at like social media sites but just you know 50 million conversations i've ever been in about korean immigrants and why they own these stores i don't care how much data i show you about capitalization all this stuff people are really fixated on this idea that korean immigrants just work hard and help each other i mean they really are fixated on that self sufficiency narrative right well, why,
0: why is that not true or like why, or what have you what have you found cuz i don't well, if, I'll ta- know. Yeah. yeah yeah
1: i'll talk about it in a moment but i just want to say like that self sufficiency narrative cuts across Like a lot of black people believe that self-sufficiency narrative about Korean immigrants, right? A lot of white people believe it, right? Um, You'll hear black people say, and not all black people, but you'll hear black people say, well, if we could just get our act together like Koreans. I've heard black people say that in many different spaces, right? Um, White people will say that and and they say it for racist reasons and for anti-black reasons, you know, why aren't you like Koreans, right? And Koreans get held up as an example of a range of racial groups, Um, of being, you know, self-sufficient, even to this day, even after the LA rebellion, even after all that. And what I would say is that narrative was already kind of in place, as we know, but it was, it's one that like, it was supported that narrative of kind of Korean immigrants, you know, just being, you know, targets of white supremacy and just being targets of capitalism and being targets of exclusion. But Korean immigrants are never associated with kind of being potentially predatory or being, you know, kind of wealth extracting and, 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 or the wealth extraction gets kind of separated from economic violence that we critique other wealth extractors of there's, and, and, and so forth. There's a way where there's kind of a protectiveness around Korean immigrants when we're kind of just saying, well, they just work hard and they're self-sufficient. So that's a basic kind of argument that circulates among the general public. And it's a basic argument. Like I've been teaching classes, and race and ethnicity for like 20 years. I don't care how many times I give detailed lecture notes about the problems of my minority myth. I have students of all races to this day who are like, this is why Asians are so self-sufficient. I'm like, did you get all the notes critiquing that myth and talking about like how it was an anti-black myth? And all? But they really are invested in that, right? And they're getting messages all the time that this is kind of the image. So that image of Korean immigrants being self-sufficient, that's part of the discourse of, Korean immigrants being supposedly excluded from banks and excluded from institutions and supposedly only could find themselves in poor black neighborhoods because they were self-sufficient and they supposedly like had to start there. Right. So that's like part of that narrative, right? The idea of kind of black people being quote unquote misdirected at Korean immigrants and supposedly misdirected in their rage because Korean immigrants supposedly, you know, they're not white or capitalists, right. That's also an example of kind of the beleaguered, you know, Asian immigrant who's just trying to, you know, uh, find their way in America and so forth. And so that image of kind of the Asian immigrant who's just trying to deal with discrimination and does so self-sufficiently and isn't really trying to bother anybody, but just finds themselves, you know, the target of kind of opposition, right? That's part of the model minority bit discourse in a variation. And it has variations that cut across kind of these conversations here, right? So I would say that one has states, um, that one has stayed the mainstream kind of conversation that people have used to kind of still talk about Korean immigrant entrepreneurs, right?
0: Why why is it a myth then? Because I think for most people thinking about it now, they don't know this, you know, like, they, yeah, I think if they are educated to a certain extent on this, their thought is basically, "Well, Koreans basically have their own credit systems. They go to church. They make business connections. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of chain migration, so like they help out their cousins, their brothers who came over. If right, you, right, you right. have like three stores in X neighborhood, and then you help yeah. your brother who came over set up another store. Now, I don't think that that narrative. You know, even though I, I understand that it. I don't think that that narrative in terms of the facts that it explains is incorrect, right? A lot of Korean mm-hmm. families did come over and mm-hmm. say, okay, mm-hmm. I have a store. Now you set up a store. But what, what's the reality of it? Like, okay. Or like what, what's wrong with that sort of thinking?
1: So, you know, I used to go up to um, uh, the Asian American Writers Workshop when it was in a different location in midtown Manhattan, Koreatown. And,
0: um, Wait, it's not there anymore? Where is it now?
1: It moved because I hosted some talk. I mean, and let's I was, not
0: get sidetracked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, right. I was
1: totally confused when yeah. I was trying to find it in another yeah. location. I was looking for the Korean restaurant that used to be underneath it, right? But um but basically, uh, what I would, you know, so Asian American Writers Workshop, I would go there. I used to live in Philly, so I'd go up to New York City sometimes with some poets and hang out at AAWW. And it was in Midtown Manhattan. And I originally, my scholarship was originally trying to understand what I saw as like, I was actually part of that kind of conversation of, Oh, black people are kind of misguided and, you know, um, and I was trying to do work showing positive race relations between black people and black residents and customers and Korean store owners. I was trying to demystify this idea of conflict. So I had done like ethnographies in Korean owned businesses, including in, Toledo, Ohio, where I got my masters from. And that's not, you know, there's not a lot of studies of like, you know, Korean owned businesses in black neighborhoods in Toledo, Ohio. So sure. I, I I might have like one of the few studies that's ever been done. And um, but when I would go to New York, I would see these Korean American banks and Korean banks in Midtown Manhattan, which is kind of, you know, kind of a little bit of a financial district and business district for Korean businesses, right? You don't have a lot of Korean retail stores there, but you have wholesalers and you have Korean banks. And I would see on the door um, SBA lender. And I knew the SBA was a small business administration. And I was kind of like, okay, you know, I'm being told in the literature that I've been like reading for, by that time, I'd been reading some of these studies. And I had literally like photocopies and photocopies of studies I'd use in previous, you know, research projects, including my master's thesis. And I was like, well, according to these studies, Korean banks aren't really a source of capital. It's all, you know, people are just supposedly kind of pooling their resources and what were considered K clubs and rotating credit, right?
0: So you're talking, but you're talking about banks, banks based in Korea.
1: Well, there's, so it was a combination. So I started to kind of say, okay, let me look at these Korean banks more. So I switched my focus from kind of looking at racial interaction and doing ethnographies of racial interaction in the businesses. And I started to switch my focus to looking at Korean banks. So, I focused on Los Angeles and New York City because those are the two largest concentrations of Korean immigrants, the two largest concentrations of Korean uh, businesses, and also the two largest concentrations of Korean banking. And so, Koreatown, LA, and then um, Midtown Manhattan, mm-hmm. uh, Koreatown, that's where you have a lot of headquarters of either Korean American banks. So, those are banks where Korean Americans Established them and their charter in the U.S., or they were the like headquarters for the subsidiary um, of a Korean bank that was established in Korea, right? And so I did like eighty-one interviews with people who work for these banks in both cities, and I spent time in L.A. and also, you know, I went up to New York. Like I was adjuncting a lot, so I went up to New York like on the regional rail. I spent so much time in Penn Station going up on like Wednesdays and Fridays when I wasn't teaching. And then I would transcribe my like interviews on the train home or whatever. Yeah. And so I also interviewed, I was going to just do SBA lenders. And the reason why I was interested in the SBA is because part of the discourse of Korean immigrant self sufficiency was they would say, well, they're disadvantaged as immigrants. And as immigrants, they're not likely to be able to get loans from banks. And so they have to turn inward and just be self-sufficient. And they would say, well, they're also disadvantaged or they aren't getting resources from the government. And part of what I was interested in is that in some of the scholarship, and also if you listen to just some commentary that sometimes people would make, let's say in Black talk radio or in kind of Black political forums, you know, there were times where Black people in some of these forums would raise questions saying, are Korean immigrants getting some special advantage, right? Right is there some loan earmark for them? And that might seem, you know, some people might kind of delegitimize that, but really to me, there are questions that were being raised there about how does a fairly recent, we know Korean, you know, Jay, you yeah. and I know that Korean immigrants have been here since like the early 1900s, but in very small numbers, right? It's yeah. after the 1965 Immigration Act that you have a substantial number of Korean immigrants. And that's where you see a few Koreatowns get established is after 1965, right? So these Koreatowns are fairly kind of new inventions, okay? Um, and what happens is that question about kind of are Korean immigrants getting some type of special assistance from the government, is the government helping them? I didn't take that literally, per se. I did to a certain extent, like I use this kind of a point of investigation. But what I did was I treat it as kind of a legitimate question to say, what might be ways that Korean immigrants actually get resources from the U.S. federal government to open businesses that have been discounted because we're focused so much on the self-sufficiency narrative, right? Because what would happen is, and this is what was interesting about the social science scholarship is, in some of these surveys, Korean immigrants would say they use banks, but yet it would be kind of, you know, they only, you know, they rely mainly on each other or they would report like their high levels of human capital, right? But as you and I know, you can have high levels of human capital. That doesn't mean you get the returns on them. And, and Black people, you know, if we think about how Black people tend to be disadvantaged in hiring, right, even when they have different forms of human capital, that's more competitive sometimes than, let's say, white people, right? It means that there's a racial process involved. And, you know, you don't just get human capital like a college degree and then you get the returns automatically. You're still being filtered through kind of, you know, racist and discriminatory practices, Right. And so people would just say, well, Korean immigrants have a high level of human capital and they come over, or they would say they have a high level of education, or, which is human capital, or they would say they're just self-sufficient and they don't get these resources. But yet when you read some of these earlier studies that were like, like Light and Bonisich, right? And uh, uh, Bonisich and Ivan Light, who did a lot around Milman Minority Theory, one of their major books was like published in like, I think it was like the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, And they talk about state-run Korean banks that have, you know, operations here in the U.S., right? Does that mean all Korean immigrants were getting access to loans? No, but it also speaks to kind of transnational capital through foreign banks having offices here, right? And offices here where they're very much kind of mainly only lending primarily to Korean immigrants, right? And that's getting kind of disappeared from this narrative in the post-LA rebellion moment, where there's this kind of anxiety about wanting to disprove, right, that um, Korean immigrants, you know, um, you know, had more agency in this process, and 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 where there's this kind of idea that they just ended up in black neighborhoods, right? Another thing that happened. So I started I started interviewing people for the small business Administration and. Um, they introduced me to a range of people, so I actually expanded it to like the Minority Business Development Agency, um, Resource Partners of the SBA and MBDA, the AA White House Commission on Asian American Pacific Islanders, and their commission that year was focused on economic development, and also the um, the FDIC. So I got all like the notes. the The man from FDIC kindly gave me all the notes from the Korean Economic Roundtable. I got to see all the Korean banks and the Latino banks in the neighborhood that were at these meetings, right? And so what I was able to show was there is a significant presence of Korean banks. Now, they're clearly not as powerful or have as much money or doing as much lending as like Bank of America, right? But if you looked at the data, those, the, a small number of Korean banks had so much more assets in them than the total number of black banks. And the total number of black banks like were much higher in terms of total number of banks, right? Versus Korean banks, there were more black banks than Korean banks, but the Korean banks like had so much more assets, right? And when I did these interviews with Korean bankers, I'd say, who are your clients? The majority of their clients were Korean American. And they would say, we, you know, these are the type of businesses we invest in. You don't
0: think that that counts as like, okay, so my my question would be like, I I understand that these, that these banks are, have a lot of money and that they're the ones in a lot Mm -hmm. of places that are funding these small business loans, Right. Mm-hmm. But like, do you do you think that really is outside of like the self sufficiency thing? Like, I'm so glad
1: you asked that, Jay, because, like, because to me, it's just like, well, I think that. most
0: people would be like, yeah, they have their own banks too, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not it's not just the key system, right? Which is like mm-hmm. sort of the I don't know informal name given to the mm-hmm. informal Rotating loan credit. system, right? Um yeah. It's not just, you know, your cousin or the person, you, the deacon at church gives you like a $10,000 loan or some shit like that, right? <laughs> right, But right. Like, they also have their own banks. Like, is that really outside of, of a self-sufficiency narrative, though?
1: No, I'm so glad you asked that, because that was actually something that I addressed in my dissertation and in a lot of articles outside of that, is that, you know, on one hand, people could say, well, these are ethnic banks and that communities create their own banks. But banks, you cannot just create your own bank. You have to get like a charter. You have to, you know, go through state regulations, right? right? Um, if you're doing, tra- if you're doing transnational capital exchanges, I used to work as an international business consultant, and um, for the Fox School of Business at Temple University, and I had to do these business reports, and I had to train students um, in this business practicum about how to kind of do reports for companies that wanted to do kind of overseas or do trade um, and and import goods. You cannot, like, we would have to look up the codes for like, if you wanted to import pencils, right? Like, you can't just kind of do international transactions without having that be regulated and having that be, you know, um, you know, that's a state process right? And that's also a diplomatic relations process. You can't just trade or send money to and do transactions or immigrate from certain countries, right? We have to have diplomatic relations. And so part of it is there's this way where we want to think about some of this stuff, if it's just ethnic, that's self-sufficient. But one of the things I was trying to push back on was I was saying, when you institution build, that's never outside of the purview of the state, That's never outside of the purview of what is permitted to be built. Um, And so if we think about just organizations, if we think about associations, if we think about the surveillance that people give for like, you know, what groups and, you know, who's investigated for kind of, you know, tax fraud and what organization, I mean, there's all these ways that institution building has been monitored and surveilled, but you just cannot open up a bank. Right? And you cannot open up an international bank right. or that's why international think, office. You know, like it's not the, self-sufficiency. The Nothing co- that requires the state to allow you to do it is self-sufficiency.
0: You wrote on Twitter that you wanted to ask me about Asian oh, America. Oh, yes. Okay, so what this do you want what, to what ask what me? That's what I've been
1: kind of curious about, Jay. Right. And it's not just you. I, I think it's it's something I've been curious about, about your approach to this conversation. But it's also something that I've seen among others a lot of other Asian Americans in a lot of spaces, not just on social media, but in a variety of spaces. But the way that people kind of talk about Asian America as this kind of political community. So they'll, you know, as you know, they'll say, well, Asian America was a term that was invented by so-and-so in the sixties or something. Right. Or people use it. I, yeah. Right. And API. Hearst, or Asian.
0: Hearst, Hearst, Hearst Avenue in Berkeley, California. they, got in a house there were seven of them and when they okay. got done with their meeting the term asian american came out that's the myth of it which i okay. think is a true myth for like for what it's worth but yeah
1: but but what i have always been kind of curious about so people will be like oh it's a you know i've heard some people who are pro kind of the term and they'll say it's it's what we're building is solidarity it's like it's a term it's an i asian american is an identity of solidarity right that's what people say basically And a solidarity among other Asian groups to each other, right? And on one hand, you're, you like, I think are challenging that. And I know different people will challenge that along with you in terms of thinking about, well, what does this mean for class or why is it that certain groups still get to be kind of representative or dominant in shaping the narrative of Asian America, even if it's supposed to be kind of this pan-ethnic, you know, solidarity term, right? But You know, I listened to part of your podcast this morning that you did with the Dig with Daniel Denver. I was trying to get smarter while I was eating my breakfast. And I I actually the the question that Daniel raised to you is a question he didn't say it in the way I would, but this is a question I've had is Asian Americans will talk about racism against Asian Americans, we'll talk about anti-Asian racism, but then we'll kind of treat Asian America as a race, as something that's kind of political kinship and it's based upon kind of our sensibilities towards each other but yet race as a state-sanctioned project that's also state sanctioned we're talking about kind of connected to colonialism immigration enforcement policies and kind of judicial you know court decisions legal decisions and stuff right and the census right that kind of disappears from the conversation so it becomes where asian americans like we're a race because we choose a form of solidarity with each other. And then some people will be like, well, are we really Asian American because do we really have the solidarity or is it kind of, you know, really real? Right. As you know, what about class differences or what about like sexual politics or, you know, what about this ethnic group versus that? But I've always been curious about how are there so many Asian Americans who are best in social justice work? And we'll talk about anti-Asian violence. We'll talk about the role of the state. We'll talk about imperialism. We'll talk about wars. but yet race race as a state sanctioned category right kind of disappears
0: well I, i'm not sure what the what what, what what do you mean
1: well your critique of asian america is kind of you know not a real kind of uh identity still leaves kind of race as as rooted in like how people identify no 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 that's no process. because in the original, that's what the, I, in the original what I thing that
0: i wrote i said that it only exists in moments of discrimination right and that that um that's what it is it's basically like if me and my asian friends I, this is what i said on the show which is me and my me and andy the co-host of the show is mm-hmm. taiwanese american chinese american whatever like stand next to each other then somebody wants to punch an asian person it's like they're not going to choose the korean guy or the taiwanese guy or the taiwanese guy or the guy right like that would Mm -hmm. have to be a very specific racist (laughs) but um and i do think that it that you know that it exists because other people think it exists right but i don't think that the term itself and the way that it's presented that you know that the idea that there is this sort of like opt-in solidarity and that you know um that that it is meaningful in the ways in which like if you go to a college and you join a Asian-American club and you have these Asian-American friends, right? Like, I'm not sure how deep that is. Um, You know, like, I I think that, like, that sort of formation of it is the thing that I'm constantly critiquing. Like, I don't, I just don't believe in it. And, like, the reason why I don't believe in it is because it seems like the only people who talk about it are East Asian people who go to college, you know, and that they have this transformative moment. (laughs) And then and then they sort of say, like, oh, well, this is a thing. And then the way that they justify that this is a thing is that they talk about AAPA and they talk about the radical 60s and they talk about all this sort of secret history stuff that you talked about, right? And that... Guess what? Like I and then and then like they'll just say like, "Well, I think it's a real thing." And like I don't think it, It's just like, you know who I've never actually heard say, "I think Asian American is a real thing." I've never heard a Pacific Islander or like a South Asian or even really like most Southeast Asians. I've never heard them talk about how they think that Asian America as experienced by East Asian college, college kids that mostly at elite schools is like a real is like a real thing, you know, <laughs> like I've never heard awesome. that in my life, you know? And so and I'm just like, well, and then, so if you go outside of that small group of people who go to elite colleges and you actually look at like who is Asian American in this country, just, you know, a lot of people who are poor, a lot of people who are recent immigrants, and a lot of people who are not poor, who are recent immigrants who have very right-wing politics none of those people care about the radical 60s or Asian American as a political term. They don't even identify really as Asian American, right? Like they identify as whatever group that they are. And so like, what is it then? You know, like, that's, that's just a question that I always ask. It's just, so just okay, so what is it? You know, like, if we just say like, all right, well, so is it just like the legacy of this one moment in the 60s between like, let's say like 2000 to be charitable, you know, kids in California, and then a couple kids at Columbia and at the University of Michigan, then like, you know, like, okay, you know, but like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. What am I supposed to do with that?
1: This is why I'm talking about the state, right? So one of the things that happens is you have various levels of how people like experience or interact with what they think race is. And so, yes, you have people who they might not think like if you look at the beginning of Harold and Kumar. Right. And on one hand, people are like, this is a breakthrough film because you got two Asian American men playing the lead. But when you listen to the narrator in the preview, they're like that Asian guy from like American pie or something like that. Right. And they're talking about John Cho, but then they, they don't talk, you know, he's the Asian guy. Cause he's East Asian. He's Korean. Right. But then, you know, um, uh, Cal Penn is not kind of described as the Asian guy in the same way right? Right. it's like
0: the Kamala thing right like right
1: just, but right. but the thing is if you look at the history of immigration policy like there is where they called the, the Asiatic bard zone so we hear a lot about you know the Japanese Exclusion Act, the Chinese Exclusion Act, maybe the page Act right but you had what was called the Asiatic bard zone and one thing I point out to my students is if you look at the countries that they the state considered Asiatic, it was like Afghanistan. Siam. It was like, you know, Polynesian Island. It was places that were all over the world in terms of regions. There were countries that a lot of those countries today would not be considered Asian and they wouldn't consider themselves Asian. They were not phenotypically similar in any way in a lot of ways. Right. But the state constructed them as Asiatic. And this is the point that I think Daniel was getting at uh, Denver when he was talking about reading the book, about the third "quote unquote" Asiatic invasion, and that that was a discourse that um, white people were using to describe Filipinos, right? right. And um, after Japanese and Chinese, and so even with some of these debates about our Pacific Islanders. Now, I'll say this: I've been around a lot of Southeast Asians who see themselves as Asian American, and they are very active in social justice work. And some of them come from working class backgrounds. I've been around a lot of Filipinos who are in Asian American spaces, and you know, South Asians who worked in those spaces and also participate in those spaces. So I have a different experience of being around a variety of these groups that everybody else says don't see themselves as this way. And I'm like, uh but you're talking about Asia, an activist like,
0: class of that population.
1: But but you also have just sometimes like my parents professional don't think circles. my parents have
0: been in America for them since nineteen seventy nine. Okay. And uh you know, they're well educated and mm-hmm. they under, they read the news, they read you know, they read about Asian war- stuff because, you know, I write about it. They don't see themselves as Asian American, you know, you're like I, it's just but, like, I don't think that's a real thing.
1: But what I'm saying is, so on one hand, you're talking about like, what I'm trying to say is that the state also can construct right, who's right. Asiatic. But that's, know, but that all is under like what's in law. That's right? what's
0: discrim- That's the part that is discrimination. Right.
1: But I think you. Uh, what would be helpful? I mean, you don't have to do this. But I think right. what happens is because your critique is mainly about identity, and 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 people can also say, well, discrimination means different things. Like, is it just somebody racistly conflating Vincent Chin? No, no. But that's not what I'm kid, saying. Right? But
0: that uh, sure. But you're talking about like people misreading me and me having to like <laughs> respond to misreadings of my work. Like, I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna like apologize for people misreading <laughs> the work. No, but what like, I'm saying like is.
1: I'm saying that when you're talking about kind of race, I don't think you can just debunk Asian America because different Asians don't identify with it. But
0: that's but that's not the extent I'm of my I'm saying
1: that Asian but, America exists as a racial project regardless of people identify with it or not.
0: Well, I, and look,
1: that's at the level of the
0: state. Sure, but the, but at the same time, like I also think like First of all, I you know that is discrimination, right? Like, that's, okay, like, that's, 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 no, it is. Like, why would that? No, n- okay, I hear
1: that's you. Like the, I hear
0: that's you. like the definition. Like the I the Asiatic Bard zone. I wrote I write about it in the book that it's coming out in the fall, right? Um, <laughs> and yeah, it was you know that's about as pan Asian racist as you can get, right? <laughs> um, the visa, the ways that they were uh, that the the National Origins Act like limited mm-hmm. the visas, right? Mm-hmm. Like the mm-hmm. countries they chose to limit. Yeah, that's about as pan Asian races as you can get. But that's not what people talk about when they talk about Asian America, right? They're not talking about it in terms of like immigration history. Um they're talking about it as sort of like a race. And I think that it is like a I think it is an act of racecraft at that point, right? Like it is mm. like a oh God. it is trying are you talking
1: to talk about barbara are you Yeah 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 Steele? sure.
0: But like, she like doesn't it,
1: even take race that seriously well, Come
0: on. well, I don't either. <laughs> I think okay. that's okay. Sort of re- well, so, like,
1: okay, well, there we go then. But what, but what I'm saying is, there are ways that, like, classification. So, you know, I, I just, I just, what I think is strange is that. This is almost a version of kind of like what white people say, like, well, there's this internal diversity in these class differences and da, 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 da. Like, what is whiteness?
0: Well, OK, right? but what yeah. is
1: race? You know what I mean? Like,
0: sure. What is whiteness?
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs>
0: oh, what? No, I've, I'm serious. You know, like I I, I, I my journal, you know, that sort of I, I would not say that this I I'd like the uh, I am not an intellectual, and I'm you know. If anything, I'm an intellectual. Oh, anti-intellectual. stop, it, Jay! Stop with the don't be like, I'm not intellectual. The tradition,
1: you do that false humility the tr- No, no, I'm, I'm actually just saying. You, know you do your research. You know <laughs> the, you do your the research. The tradition
0: that I that that I would come out of is you know like sort of, I don't know, sojourner truth society like that type of thinking, right? That mm-hmm. the goal is to try and like make it so that 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 we don't. You know it, it is a way in which like we sort of expose how race is just a myth, you know how it is how it is false and how it is constructed and I just think that basically taking these data points from history and then saying, "Oh well, we are a people then right well, then who believes that you know like like yes, the state did act against like Asian countries in tandem right at that point, it also acted very differently towards Asian countries like, throughout American history as well, right? Like, Korea is treated differently mm-hmm. than Vietnam. China is mm-hmm. treated, treated differently mm-hmm. than Japan. Like, the reactions to, like, the imperialism of Japan in the 20th century and the 19th mm-hmm. century, like, in the ways in which, like, immigration law has changed because of the threat mm-hmm. of, like, Japanese propaganda, like, all, like, whatever Pearl S. Buck was doing the entire time, all of that is, like, you know, complicates <laughs> that question too, right? And so then in the end, you're just like, all right, well then, you know, I think that my my question to people, you know, and um is essentially like okay, well, outside of like how you felt when you were in college, right? When you're mm-hmm. trying to identify with something. Like what is it? And then once you once you expand it beyond East Asians who go to college, then is is are we talking about something where 90 I would 99% is too much, but let's say if you explain it to 90% of people that this is what it is, right? This is what mm-hmm. the identity is. And that and that 90% of the or you explain to every Asian American person this is what the identity is and 90% of the people don't get it. Then what is it? You know? I don't know. That's that that's my question.
1: But I think there's a difference between like I don't assume that there's a coherency among how people identify with how they've been racialized and how the state has kind of established what are parameters of like what category you're supposed to be part of. Right. Um, And, and so I don't assume that. And I think that's where differentiate, like I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying about people don't identify with different stuff and that people can kind of also assert having a shared agenda and who controls that kind of discourse and so forth. But I don't think that that's at odds with the fact that you can have, you know, institutions and States that play a role in constructing kind of what race is on a level of kind of boundary making and enforcement, oh, right? Yeah, sure. Even if people don't agree with that. And I know I have a feeling you're going to be like, this is discrimination.
0: No, but I'm saying Asian is a race <laughs> as to, because it's on the census, right? It's clearly okay. a race, you know, like, and it's been defined in a lot of ways. <laughs> And, um, and I don't, I'm not saying that Asian is not a thing, you know, like I just clicked it off today, um, you know, <laughs> signing up for my second vaccine dose. I was like, yeah, I'm Asian, whatever, you know? Like oh, like, I'm so jealous
1: a, that you're getting, I'm well, so happy for you though.
0: It's a thing, mm-hmm. but I'm just saying that uh, if, for uh, politically it's a politically, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but like for my, <laughs> my con- my concerns are with like
1: games gavel
0: well yeah exactly my 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 concern is with like politics right and it is with like what is the most politically pragmatic way to take this group of people and point them in the way direction that i want to point them in which is generally you know towards like a very left left vision right okay um then like what? What's the best way to do that? And it's just like, well, it's not to sort of present this identity that the group that they are, right? That is, in, that when we're, what you're actually talking about is a bunch of East Asian, rich East Asians, right? Like you can't have that be the vision of the identity, and like that, and it definitely can't be what a bunch of Asian people did in 1967, 1969, 1973, you know, mm-hmm. or 1984, right? Of um, and it can't be like, uh, and, and like, but those are the those are the visions that are put out there. And at the point where it just becomes like a conversation about what the conversations around Asian Americanness are right now, I just find is it is that narrative of the progressive version of that is that convincing to the people who are, uh, you know, just even across the bay, like the working class populations of San Francisco? No. I would say absolutely not. You know, is it is it convincing to the vast majority of people in Los Angeles, LA's Koreatown? No, I would say it is absolutely not. Is it convincing to the Cambodian populations down in East Oakland? You know, like, I don't know, like 10 miles south of me right here. No, it's not. So who is it convincing towards? It's convincing towards the population that makes that category. And the population that makes that category, right, is like kind of politically inert in a lot of ways, right? Like their, their, their interests line up with white liberal interests. And so I don't think it's a political category. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. I don't think it's a political category. I think it is a category that is certainly like a thing because you have to check it off, you know, and that's how you're classified. But I don't, you know, I don't, it's not just about how you identify and whether you identify in the movement is whether that movement or the term has any sort of political capital to it. And I would just okay. argue it doesn't. Okay.
1: No, this is so helpful because I've been trying, I've been, you know, kind of, I've been reading your stuff for a while and I do read your tweets. Um, and I know that this has been kind of a theme of your work. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what I would say is, I think that how people in various classes also learn about kind of being Asian American can differ in different ways. And so, you know, I was in a lot of spaces where like working class and poor uh, Asian Americans were kind of socialized into some of these narratives, right? Because they become part of like youth programs and so forth. And they are some of the same people now who are adults who are the ones posting these memes and stuff, do you mean? So, um, you know, but that isn't to say that you don't have a point there, but I think I've just become curious when people will like say Asian American, I'm not saying that you always do this per se. You have, I think a more complicated view, but they'll say like Asian America is a political identity and it's about, you know, solidarity. And then I'm always interested in how we think that race actually exists as Asian Americans, regardless of how we actually identify with each other. Do you know what I mean?
0: Mm.
1: Because I feel like there's ways that because we are so focused on making it a political identity. And I do think, I think this is, you know, part of Asian American discourse to me, I feel like there's there's often this kind of tinge of anxiety about like wanting to make sure that people don't think that we think we're white or that we're honorary whites. And so I've always been curious about when Asian Americans want to kind of assert that Asian America is a political identity, is it a way to try to say like, we also see ourselves as non-white and we're kind of rejecting assimilation in a certain way, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, but then I think that you know i'm not sure if that when people reject assimilation in that way they're actually rejecting assimilation but yeah. like here's an example that i th- well um here's an example that i'll say like uh michael eric dyson recently wrote a piece in the washington post and it was basically saying that we should think about asian american history in the same way that we, in a similar way that we think about black history mm-hmm. right now um and he mentioned vincent chin Chinese exclusion, Korematsu, the mm-hmm. lynching of Chinese men in Chinatown in Los Angeles mm-hmm. in like I don't know 1912 mm-hmm. or something like that, or may, you know sometime in the post Gold post-Gold Rush era, and uh, and the Page Act and all this sort of stuff. Now, like Mike, the way that I think about this is essentially like I don't think you can make the conflation between the two histories as mm-hmm. two histories of oppression because like the vast majority of Black Americans in this country can draw a straight line from themselves to slavery right mm-hmm. like they have grandparents who went through jim crow right mm-hmm. the vast majority of asian americans in this country were not born in the united states you mm-hmm. know and so like yes yeah. is the way in which like america looks at the asian person uh continuum sure maybe you know but like is there a straight like we're all like does is every asian person like did we're all there great grandparents interned, um, you know, during, during the post Pearl Harbor? No, you know, Uh, they were, did they all participate? Did all of our uh, parents participate in the third world liberation front? No, you know, like uh, most, most people came after Vincent Chin even, you know? So like the people who are actually the people who the identity is supposed to serve don't know any of this history, but even if they did, they wouldn't feel particularly connected to it because there's not like a straight bloodline back to that to that history, right? It is a new group of people mm-hmm. who have come in that have constituted Asian America and that there is a level, two to three levels of abstraction to get to, oh, actually, you know, this; these moments in history are totally relevant for you. And so I don't think you can think about them the same way. I don't think that Asian, it is mm-hmm. useful for Asian Americans to think of that their history of oppression in the same way that black Americans think about their history of oppression, because I don't mm-hmm. think, I don't think that it's like a natural, like, I don't know. I just don't think that, like, I just don't think it's relevant, you know, in a lot of ways, like my, like our mm-hmm. history of, I, I don't know, Tamra, were you born in the United States no. or born in Korea? Yeah. Okay. So our history, right. I was also born in Korea. Our history of oppression is who? It's Japanese. <laughs> You know, like no, I'm I'm trying to laugh, but it's totally true. Right. So when we talk to our parents, right, and they're or we talk to our grandparents, right, what do they talk about? Well, they talk about the war, right. They talk about they they might actually talk about American imperialism, but it is within the context of South Korea. But -hmm. the thing that they talk about the most are the Japanese, right. And um, and I don't know. I, I I think that's I think that is a that that is like an actual history. Mm -hmm. that is not the but they don't talk about the Chinese Exclusion Act right um and so like that that's the sort of thing where I just think like if the project of Asian America is essentially to replicate in some form the project of black liberation movements right I think that that doesn't work because I think that like you know black people have a very specific history in this country right and a very specific uh, like history of oppression and that that is part of the national discourse, right? To try and replicate it by stringing together five or six events in history and say, we also are like them. You know, I actually think it's like pretty racist to think that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it is, it is kind of LARPing a a history, LARPing, you know, like whatever, like it's LARPing a history that, that might not mean anything to you, you know? Mm -hmm. And then when you put it on, right? Like when you say, Oh, Chinese Exclusion Act, Page Act, uh, Vincent Chin, you know, mm-hmm. that that you're really actually kind of misunderstanding and misdiagnosing your own place in America. Um, and you're sort of buying into mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. myth. And you might, like, look, it's like, it, are you minimizing, like, the suffering that black people have gone through in this country? Maybe not, you know, like, maybe it is out of, like, a place of empathy. But I also think that it is, like, a misdiagnosis of your own place in this country, mm-hmm. um, and it is a focus on the wrong things that actually... Or, you know, getting Asian people tacked, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think by saying, oh, it's because of the Chinese Exclusion Act that this person was, you know, uh, kicked in the, you know, like outside of this apartment building. Like, that's not right, you know? Like that.
1: I mean, remember Dr. Dao, the man who got dragged off of the yeah, flight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember people were, like, doing these kind of, if I remember it was like tweet threads being like, this is like the Chinese exclusion act. Right. And, so, and, I, and I was just kind of like, um... so I think there are these moments. I do think there are these moments where people bring up kind of these things. But what I'll say is this, is that what I would like to see, you know, I share your interest in talking about class differences among Asian Americans, because I do think we don't talk about that enough. And I'll say why I think that's important in a moment. But what I will say is that as an educator, I, you know, the idea that something will not move somebody or that it's not going to, you know, I'm not saying that this is totally what you're saying, but um, I don't know if I'm convinced that somebody wouldn't be interested in learning some of this history if they don't know it, right? Just because of what their circumstances are in life and so forth. So um, I'll say that. But um, one of the things that I've been finding interesting about the conversation about what happened to the eight people in Atlanta is you know you're you're having this kind of conversation about class right now where some people are saying okay, um, you know, and part of it is through the conversation about were the women sex workers should we care about that um, women who work in certain industries right being more vulnerable in terms of immigration status some sometimes immigration status and class status but what I've found so interesting and you know I've studied a lot on Asian business ownership but also I taught Asian diaspora for years right. and. A big part of Asian diaspora was about dealing with class violence between within Asian countries and Asian communities uh-huh. and, and so forth. And so what I found interesting is that this is not to take away from the fact that everyone was murdered, but you had business owners of these parlors and you had workers. Do you, know you mean like you have a class difference right there that exists, Right. And when you have right now Asian Americans saying, well, we want to talk about structural violence against Asian Americans and talking about like low wage work or industries in which, you know, Asian immigrants might be kind of more concentrated and vulnerable to immigration enforcement and vulnerable to forms of labor control and exploitation. Some of these Asian immigrants are working in Asian owned businesses, right? Right. Or in kind of ethnic economy neighborhoods that are never just self sufficient neighborhoods like a Chinatown and so forth, right? And so I've been interesting kind of when we're talking about these examples of structural violence against Asian Americans, whether it's immigration policies or whether it's you know um, the violence uh, that the women uh, experienced who were killed, but also the exploitation that they might have experienced in those industries. I'm like, where's some of the class analysis here uh, between Asian Americans, right? Right,
0: right, right. Well, the Times did publish one story about like the owner and the employees, Mm -hmm. right? But Mm -hmm. um, I agree. But, you know, I don't think I think that like what you're (laughs) maybe I'm wrong here. But like what I think like if you can picture like an upside down, this is a horrific analogy, but I'm just going to go with it. Like okay. An upside down iceberg or something like that, right? Okay. The class conversation about what happened in Atlanta is like such a tiny conversation about what happened in Atlanta amongst Asian Americans that I've seen, mm-hmm. and then the interclass within the immigrant community is like the tiny part of the iceberg. in in the small part of the iceberg Mm -hmm. the vast majority of the conversation is this identity nonsense about like you know like oh well now is the time for me to talk about how i wish i hadn't changed my name from my chinese or korean name to my to my english name or like like this is like you know or like this is uh you know uh this is what happened to me in my workplace when when people mixed me up with the other asian person it's just about like interpersonal microaggressions yeah. And so I would say that, like, strange. look, I think the way in which you and I agree is that, like, or the places <laughs> that we disagree are on that tiny part of the iceberg. But by think <laughs> it's like the big part of the iceberg that's flipped upside down. I guess is for is like either in the air or underwater, whatever. Like again, this is like a messed up metaphor. The vast part of that conversation is what I'm reacting against, right? Yeah. Like that, like if you can only internalize this by saying we are both Asian right yeah, me and this person saying. in georgia mm-hmm. but i am like a media professional who was raised in an upper class suburb upper middle class suburb and i now have okay. gone through elite colleges and whatever and i am now a professional in this industry And that because me and this person in Georgia are both Asian, I will also tell you about my trauma. Like that's the part of the identity that I think is, you know, that I think needs to be, like, no, I'll just say, like, I think that that type of identity, A, I think that is racecraft, right? And Mm -hmm. B, I think that that is like so wildly disrespectful to what actually happened, right? Like, and it erases... It completely yeah. erases these people's lives, and it I and see. it supposes mm-hmm. essentially that the reason why this person got killed, these people got killed, or why they're in this vulnerable position is exactly the same thing that made it so that your coworker thought that you were you were the other Asian, person, which is crazy, you know, like like, yeah. and that is the way that Asian I- American identity functions right now, right? It is top yeah. down, like educated, wealthy P- A- East yeah. Asian immigrants sort of coming out and saying like everything bad that happens to Asians is about me. Right. And, and like that, that's where I think the identity needs to like be dissolved. essentially. You
1: know, but I think one of the things that made me really uncomfortable, like there's several class things are, I mean, it's just several things are kind of strange to me in the way that people responded. And it wasn't when I should say strange, I would say it wasn't surprising to me, but it was kind of like concerning. So, you know, I get, um, uh, like, I've been, you know, I've been, I I had a dude come up to me at the bus stop and was like, how much do you cost? And I was like, huh, right? Like, what are you talking about? And I knew what he was talking about. He was propositioning me for sex. But, you know, one of the things is is that, so I know what it's like to be, quote, unquote, treated like a sex worker. But I don't know what it's like to actually work in sex work, right? And again, you know, we don't know what type of work exactly some of these women did. And there's all these Strange attempts to rescue them, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Or, or there's like, yeah, or to right. be
0: like, hey, or to or even sort of say, okay. like, hey, like to make it seem like the sex work was something that should be ashamed of, you know, and that right. we shouldn't and discuss, so, you know. Yeah,
1: and so you have okay. like some Asian Americans who are like, you know, that stigmatizes them more, so they're trying to supposedly rescue them from that work. But then it become it became like, you know, as you were saying, like it became like a lot of Asian American women being like, I've been sexualized, and then that got associated with like, you know, like camp towns, right, of sex work, and and sometimes compulsory sex, right, that was done, you know, through militaries, right, and then it got, you know, um, that got conflated with, you know, people who work in consensual sex work, right, and then, but then what's also been strange to me as somebody who studies Asian businesses, people like have put, care work and sex work in the same conversation. So then people are talking about like people who touch people's hands as nail salon techs. Right. And they put that in the same conversation. I'm like, that is not policed in the same way. The level of stigmatization is not the same. Right. And, you know, you're always at risk of experiencing sexual violence at work, but it's not under the same terms. Right. And so there was something where I was like, I'm watching all this and I'm like, this is just very strange to me that people are kind of conflating all these things right but what I would say is even when we're talking about like the exclusion era what I'm always interested in is you know and you have a lot of scholars who would know these details because they are professors of migration studies and citizenship studies right but like people will say the Chinese exclusion blah, 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 but like we like won't and in- a lot of times on social media you don't see them talking about like the Chinese six companies and their role in contracting Chinese Sorry. workers, right? And and the role of some of these companies like kind of controlling Chinese workers in the U.S. So I always tell my students the story about like Gabriella Network. You're familiar with them?
0: The,
1: they're like a Filipina transnational feminist org. But I teach about domestic workers and we look at domestic worker labor organizing and one of the things we look at is neoliberalism and why all these immigrant women come to you know wealthier countries to work as domestic workers and one of the things i talk about is how like gabriella network protested both an employer and the consulate's office the philippines consulate's office because um a person if i remember correctly a woman had committed suicide and she had left information saying that she had been being abused by her employer and the Filipino consulate's Office basically was kind of like, don't make a big fuss, right? Because a big export out of the Philippines are women to work as domestic workers, mm-hmm. and they don't want to look like they're sending bad workers, right. and unruly workers, right? This is the layers, when we're talking about kind of Asian America and the state, these are the layers where I would like us more to go. Because we're often kind of using this discourse of like, oh, we're treated as foreigners, or you know, and and we always equate foreignness with not having, with kind of always being in a weaker position. But you also have sometimes diplomatic relations, you have different power relations between countries. And you also have like, sometimes other countries have intervened on behalf of Asian nationals here, right, including against racial violence, right, or against racism. And so, there's even this way when we're talking about kind of asianness as excluded or civically ostracized that we don't get at all these layers of like transnational capital what it means to have kind of come from a country that has a stronger diplomatic relation to the US than other countries right, right.
0: um
1: you yeah. know what it means to have um you know like who's actually part of you know the sending of migrants under kind of controlled labor circumstances right who is sometimes the employers who are using their immigration status against them. It's other Asians in some cases. Right. This is that, the Asian diaspora. You know what so I
0: mean? Why, why wouldn't then, like, you know, I'm not saying that I believe in this necessarily. But then why wouldn't just like a full-on class reductionist uh, way of thinking about things be the proper way to thinking of, of thinking about Asian America, right? Like, because <laughs> if you're talking about how everything is super complicated, right, but in the end there are, you know, there, are the oppressor class and there's the, there's the labor class or the, you know, the working class or the oppressed mm-hmm. classes. Right. Um, and that that exists internally within Asian communities, which we know that that's true. And that that mm-hmm. not only here in the United States, but sometimes that goes mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. through, through international mm-hmm. channels. Like, it, I don't know, like that's sort of where I've come out at with all this is mm-hmm. just essentially that like, Mm-hmm. Uh, the pro- the reason why these responses in the building of Asian America right now are going two ways, right? The the first way is this sort of like, oh, well, we're just sort of talking about Third World Liberation Front for the 19th time. And, you know, we need to we need to. Uh, and let me tell you about the time when, uh, you know, my coworker had said X to me. Right. Like that's that's one form of it. That's sort of the progressive okay. side of it. And the other side of it, which I think will be much more effective, is like we are an oppressed people and that we have to fight for ourselves. All we want to do is be left alone to succeed in America. You know, like uh, we want America to be a meritocracy. We want to achieve the American dream. We want to be patriots, you know, and we can contribute a lot to America, but you have to stop, you know, taking away our schools and stuff like that. Right. Like, and we will protect ourselves. Like you don't have to worry about us. That's like sort of the right wing Asian America that I think that's being formed.
1: Okay. I'm glad you clarified that that was the right wing Asian America. I was like, Hey, is this you? I was like, no, no, but the right
0: wing, the right wing Mm -hmm. is a much more convincing argument than the progressive Mm -hmm. side. And the progressive side is a mess, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then what would be like Mm -hmm. a actual, like progressive formulation of this? Right. And it's just mm-hmm. like, well, you, when you're talking about sex workers in Georgia, you know, you should talk about sex workers in Georgia, right? Like you should, and if you can talk about the ways in which they're racialized, which puts them more at risk, but you should talk about sex workers in Georgia, right? You shouldn't talk about asian Americanness, right? Because mm-hmm. when you talk about asian Americanness, if you are of the class of people who tend to do the talking about this stuff and the people who are heard you're going to always revert to, like, your own personal shit, you know? And, like, like I think that that's sort of the problem with it right now. And so, like, why not just get rid of the Asian America part? Why not just have sort of a conversation about class across, you know, immigrant populations, and that way you can also talk about South Asians, right? Who are never taught or Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, people who are never discussed within the Asian American conversation, right? You can talk about Pacific Islanders who are always left out of these conversations. You can talk about, uh, you know, and you can talk about Latino workers and, and like that, that seems to be a much better conversation to me, like, and, uh, then just sort of this spiraling around trying to find like history Mm -hmm. anchors to, you know, build these sort of identity projects around. Um, by the way, like we're, uh, we've been going on for a long time, so like let's let's wrap it up here. Okay. Yeah.
1: I don't. I think there are actually Asian American projects that have done kind of some of these things together. I don't think they're always at odds. So, like if we go back to you know when I talked about being on the train and being a you know and going to the summer activist train, that was where Asian American college students were being kind of recruited to go through a training to try to kind of support immigrant rights organizing and to support, you know, and to possibly maybe try to work or volunteer in kind of immigrant rights organizing. And Kiwa, which was then the Korean Immigrant Workers Advocates or whatever, now they're the Koreatown Immigrant Workers Alliance or something like that. They changed their name to Koreatown because their, their neighborhood got so racially diverse, particularly with a lot of Latinos, and they're organizing a lot of Latinos, right? And so you had organizations like Asian Immigrant Women's Advocates, the ones who took on Jessica McClintock, or, you know, you have organizations where they've often focused on specific ethnic groups within, you know, who are in those industries or in those neighborhoods. Um, And they would, you know, do stuff that might be language specific and kind of cultural specific stuff. But they would also see themselves as part of the Asian American movement in different ways, right? And they would connect to and try to get Asian Americans across ethnicity and sometimes across class involved to kind of see a sense of solidarity.
0: uh, I I don't
1: think it's always at odds is what I'm saying. Sure, and
0: I would say that if that was the core of Asian American uh, messaging. And that was sort of the hegemonic vision of Asian America. That was, go- I would have no problem with it. I'd be thrilled, you know, if it was like, well, but, you know, but, these but people I'll speak say, a different yeah. language. So we have to, of course, you know, at that point, like, I'm not talking about that. I, I just think that the, that, that, that type of stuff has been so marginalized at this point. Right. And that,
1: well, and, the, and that's, what's very interesting to me is that, there's a lot of disappear not I shouldn't say disappearance but people will bring up these 60s and 70s examples, rap. They'll bring up those examples, but like the more recent history and these organizations are still here, right? That we're trying to do this work or we're trying to figure out what does solidarity look like along in uh, multiracial kind of uh, organizing, but having a class analysis where you know they're taking on a lot of times Asian employers or Asian contractors. That is not what gets kind of talked about in a lot of these examples of when people are talking about kind of Asian American activism. And so, you know, I'm always interested in like why I don't think these examples are perfect. I don't think they're always kind of examples of what I would be looking for. But I'm always curious about why more Asian Americans don't know more about Asian American history, um, especially if they're kind of arguing that we've been made invisible, but also like why. A lot of social justice oriented Asian Americans don't seem to know a lot about like the 90s and 2000s, early 2000s. Uh, and these organizations are still here. And they are some of the ones that trained people in kind of who are now EDs and people who have assumed leadership of organizations. These are some of the organizations that they came up with and doing solidarity work or youth leadership projects and stuff. Right. Sure. So I'm always kind of and, and, and these organizations tend to have better class politics.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, well, Because they're taking, actually um, dealing with someone other yeah. than college students. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, I mean, but they also, you know, this is what I was saying about the summer activist training. They were also trying to get college students involved in the movement. Right. And, and do different support work or to maybe become a full-time organizer instead of going and doing like, I don't know, whatever professional job that they might, would have done. Right. And, and I think those, that information doesn't get kind of that doesn't become part of kind of Asian American activist history that people kind of look to. But to me, that's where some of the work, the more recent efforts that we could try to learn from. And when I say learn from, I don't mean replicate all the time. But it's like, you know, that's why I, I talked about CAV and I talked about some of these organizations, you know, and I didn't like, like, I'm not calling CAV an abolitionist organization. Some people are trying to suggest they're abolitionists. I was like, they aren't abolitionists, but they were trying to take on Asia, anti Asian violence and trying to figure out how to work on that at a neighborhood level and deal with the city and all this stuff and still be opposed to police brutality. I was like, they were trying to figure that out. Like, why aren't we looking at some of these organizations as examples of well, Why don't, trying you, to why don't you think they are? I mean, some people do, but they still tend to romanticize some of them. So, like I was saying, I see some people. Okay, but, like, yeah, but yeah, but why do you I mean, think that's not like the
0: central not. focus of, of Asian American?
1: I mean, I think this goes back to the question about, like, when they decide what a hidden history is, what history do they look at, right? And even how detailed they go into that. And that, you know, the 60s and the 70s becomes this kind of Those are the memes. I mean, I'm not saying that we should have a whole bunch of memes about Kiwa or Awa, but it's like you don't see memes about them, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like maybe you want to replace the human Newton one with that. But it's like you don't see them even kind of – like people don't even – a lot of people don't even know they exist still. Right, right, right.
0: right. Or that
1: they emerged in certain historical moments and built like these important solidarity work.
0: I I think it's two things. I think, you know, maybe I'm being uncharitable here, but I would say that the first is that I, I do think I do think that I do think that Asian American studies is basically a gatekeeping organization at this point, you know, and I do think that the people who have influence within that organization like to push one narrative and and really like sort of. Uh, drum out every other narrative that's put out there. So I think when kids learn about this stuff, they're not learning about that right? They're still just learning about... They're either learning, you know, ethnic studies or critical ethnic studies or they're learning some version of that, right? Where the focus is still on these moments And Asian American history ends essentially in like 1985 with Vincent Chin and maybe sometimes in 1992 with the riots, right? Um, And I don't know. I don't know why they do that, you know? I've been asking that for... 10 years and you know the only response i ever get is like well you you don't know anything you know shut or up so do you like, know
1: the i hotel and you're like i've been in the archives about the i hotel i right? hotel is great yeah. i
0: think the i hotel should be taught more you know but like uh you know i i don't understand why the i hotel is not taught more it's like a totally fascinating story and you know involves like involves like the Jim Jones and the People's Temple, you
1: know. And so, I like, mean, that was a part of it. I didn't know until you told me. Oh, that. really? I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, Most wow! The, like, like,
0: like hundreds of the people who did the sort of standoff with the police in 1974 or something like that mm-hmm. at the international hotel where uh part of the people's temple right before they went to hey, Guyana and Jones. Yeah. yeah. Like
1: you don't see, like they don't emphasize that in the videos and documentaries no, about it much. I, me. Like I don't remember that part that was at all. A
0: little bit more understandable for me where I'd be like, yeah, you know, maybe you don't want to just make this about the people's temple, but yeah. Um, I don't know. I the, the the I Hotel I think would be a better thing to talk about than Third World Liberation Front. But I would imagine that the reason why the I Hotel is not discussed so much is because it actually was like a fracturing of the solidarity politics. You know, over time, because it starts out with like uh, mostly Filipino student organizers from San Francisco State and also community organizers from Manila Town, which at that point had been basically wiped out by uh, eminent domain and like you know the expansion of San Francisco's financial district. But then you have like the student activists from Berkeley who come in, you know, and then they start all becoming part of IWK and like starting Maoist organizations in the basement of the I Hotel, And then those two groups don't get along, you know, and then and then one of them drops. So that's why it's not, you know, and and also because it's Filipinos, it's not East Asians. Right. And that's why it's not emphasized as much, I think. I don't know. That's my and theory. And they also about taking
1: on. It. Um, it was an Asian, you know, developer, right? Remember, it was like Right, right. Well, the first guy wasn't, company. but then they yeah. sold it
0: to like a to like it, a yeah. like it was some like holding company um, and yeah. yeah, yeah, Chinese holding company. Maybe I think it's yeah. Hong Kong actually, but yeah. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, okay, we have gone on long enough at this point. Um, Tamara, thank you for coming on. This is long overdue. Um, this <laughs> is a. Of rambling and fun conversation, and I will find a way to, uh, you know, I don't know. We'll f- I'll figure out what to do with it. I think that we can maybe just <laughs> even run it um, <laughs> full, of, full of hundreds of dozens of books that mostly Tamara <laughs> suggested <laughs> that I think all of you should read. I haven't even read all of them, but I've, you know, like um, uh, I think that that if you ended up reading all the books that Tamara mentioned here, you would be way ahead of the game. Way ahead of me, even, um, or way ahead of me for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, just to, is there anything that you want to? How can people get in touch with you?
1: Um,
0: do you want people to get in touch with you? <laughs> you can say no. <laughs>
1: um, you can just Google me.
0: Okay, people find a way. People find the thing a that way. I will plug, even if you don't want me to plug, is that the book that you edited. Miriam Kaba's We Do This Till Till We Free Us, um, is out in Haymarket, uh, by Haymarket Books. Uh, if, if, you know, we didn't really get a chance to talk much about abolition, but like, um, you know, if you want sort of the text to read, right, to understand abolition, I think that's it, right? Would you say that? One of.
1: Um, I would say it's a good introductory right. book. It was really written for a, a range of people, but people who maybe abolition curious um, who are just trying to get a better understanding, but also what's nice about it is it looks at examples of organizing campaigns that try to use an abolitionist approach. So um, it can get theoretical, but it's also uh, trying to look at kind of how people practically have tried to do this. And there's something in there for everybody, people who are just trying to be introduced to the conversation, trying to get a handle on what people are talking about. And then it's also got some stuff for seasoned organizers in there too. So, um, but I will say I am on Twitter at Tamara Knopper, all one word. So Tamara Nopper, um is my Twitter handle, but
0: we'll put that you, in the Jay. show. Notes. Well, the, the, you know, the one thing I will say about the, um, about the book is that I think that even if you're skeptical about abolition, it's a, mm-hmm. you know, like there's no te- thing that you will read that'll be more accessible that will explain And I think that the one thing that I find about Miriam's work that I really Mm -hmm. admire is that she is not, she does not shy away from the difficulty Mm -hmm. of abolition, right? Mm -hmm. As Mm -hmm. a concept and as a persuasive technique, or even as like something Mm -hmm. to discuss that this is like, it's hard, you know? Mm -hmm. And that I think Mm -hmm. that, um, I don't know, that's what I've always appreciated that it's not just, like, a slogan, right? I mean, we've seen all this, like, with, especially amongst a lot of Asian Americans, where they, like, they kind of tack on, like, well, let's not have more cops as a response to this. And it's like, you kind of want more cops, you know? Like, just say that, (laughs) you know? It's okay. You don't have to, like, sort of nod towards abolition in this sort of way because you think it's, like, the trendy idea. Like, if you want, like, this is a much more deep thorny and like totally fascinating conversation i think than just like what gets said on twitter about abolition and so yeah please uh please i mean i'll please, say uh,
1: i think i think some asian americans are being sincere about that and i'm excited about
0: no me, too, think, me yeah, too me too
1: so but i do think you're right like you know one of the reasons why we included like several of miriam's interviews is because in some of those interviews she would say to the host like you know, we really got a space to really talk about these things. And a lot of times, you know, um, these are such tough conversations to have about how do we deal with harm or how do we deal right. with kind of like what are decisions we actually make and so forth and how do we live with these things. Um, and so, yeah, Miriam is somebody who re- who's a very serious thinker. And I already had thought that about her. But after editing this book and in the process of it, like my respect for her just kind of depth and just commitment um, really increased.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, As always, you can find us at goodbye.substack.com or you can contribute either there or you can subscribe for five bucks a month or you can find us at patreon.com slash TTSG. Um, Thank you for listening. Uh, I think we're going to have another episode out at the end of this week with Iko Day, who is the author of Alien Capital. And that book was the first book um, in our Discord community's book club. And we had a fantastic conversation with the... I think about 60 people were there, maybe. Maybe 40. I don't know. I don't remember how many, but it was a lot. And so if you want to... Talk about books and talk about politics and join our community today. Thanks. Bye.